0: You're listening to another
1: life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. We're going to. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different to the eight because we never know exactly where it's going to be, and we don't have enough time to dig into the wells of everything that he has. But I want to start again on Jesus said, you know, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So therefore. We don't really have time to get involved in politics because we're trying to build the church. Now, help us understand, when Jesus says the church, what word did he use? So,
0: hey everybody, so honored to be here. Uh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture in the, the burial, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so, I, my pastor, Rob McCoy, uh, from Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks, who's amazing, who's actually, I think, is preaching at another campus right now here, and he'll be, he'll be joining us at the, uh, the next service. Uh, he really challenged me, and he kind of really kind of piqued my curiosity, where he said, the word that Jesus used was not church. Uh, when Jesus Christ said to his disciples on this rock, build my ecclesia. And I was like, that's interesting. I never heard that growing up in the church. And so I went back into the original translation and Tyndale, who was the one that did the most amount of translating from Latin into English. And he really was the guy that pioneered what we know as Western civilization. As more people had the word of God and more people were able to read the word of God, all of a sudden the idea of a hierarchical dictatorship just fell apart. And English was the peasant language. E- English was not spoken by the ruling class. That was Latin at best, if not French in other countries. And so Tyndale went back into the Koine Greek and he said, what is that word ecclesia? Why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus very well could have said, on this rock build my synagogue, on this rock build my temple. But he used that term ecclesia. Now some people say it means gathering and that's not incorrect. Uh, it's just not complete. I think it's incomplete. You go back into what an ecclesia was and what an ecclesia is. Um, It was a gathering like this of Greek citizens of voting age that believed they had a duty and an obligation to make the world around them better. And so, why did Jesus use that term, a a secular term? Well, it's really interesting. You dive even deeper into every time there was an ecclesia in Corinth or in Athens or anywhere across Greece, there were two words that were etched in stone that every one of the secular Greeks would be looking at. Isonomia and eleutheria, which is the Greek word for freedom and equality. Wow. So Jesus used that secular term and he said, on this rock build my ecclesia." And so I believe firmly that Jesus never wanted compartmentalized Christianity. He wanted comprehensive Christianity. He didn't want the church to be walled off. He did not want the church not to go into a public sphere. And at the very least, we can use Jesus using that secular term ecclesia as a charge, as a challenge that we as Christians should never cash out or give an excuse that politics is not for us. No, no, no. Jesus commanded you to go into the public square. Jesus commanded you to be able to contest for truth in all arenas.
1: So, uh, you know... I love this church, by the (laughs) way. Our church loves you. (laughs) Uh, They're on fire. Well, you know, Charlie, you know, uh, because because politics can be quite controversial, shouldn't the church only speak into other issues like marriage and family and...
0: Yeah, this is interesting. I kind of came to this realization the last couple months. As I've been traveling the country, I speak at about one church a weekend, and I felt really called to do this in the last year and a half. As someone who usually is just doing campus advocacy or just speaking in conservative circles, I really felt like the church needed to up its game a little bit and get more involved in these sort of issues. And so... As I traveled the country and I started to go to some churches that had never done the political thing before, but they knew they started, they needed to start to introduce it. I realized that there were marriage ministries. There were prison ministries. There were drug rehabilitation ministries. There were youth ministries. There were aging ministries. There were food ministries. There were homeless ministries, ministries for everything. And so what I, what I realized is that the church is there to offer clarity and truth for people that are broken in a broken world, and the church is supposed to be the place that offers healing, hope, redemption through Jesus Christ. But I said, there's, there's a widget missing in all of this. Because when you're living in the country that we're living in, with the hyper-political times that we are, with a television ad, every other one that is political in nature, where you can't turn on a sporting event with politics being thrown at you, people are coming to church looking not just for answers of how do I marry, who do I marry, my finances, how do I live my life? But also, they want to know from the church, hey, can you at least help me make better informed decisions and clarity in politics? And what I have found is, is two types of churches that I have really drawn um, what I've really drawn some criticism towards. I think that there's something that they're missing. One is the complacent church. And I'm gonna offer a lot of grace to these churches because um, these times have changed since the last 20 years. Uh, The church was able to kind of take a hall pass and not really do the political thing. And I think we should offer grace. We should say, hey, come join us, open your church, do civic nights, the water's okay, jump in, it's awesome. Right, And I think we should have grace there. And I think we should have grace to the second category as well. But I also think that as Jesus is 100% grace, he's 100% truth. And I think this other category bothers me the most, which is the complicit church. It's the church that decided, yeah, we're going to be political, but we're going to mobilize our church to BLM. Yeah, we're going to be political, but we are going to really misrepresent the political times that we're in. And we have seen that happen with even some of the mega churches here in Southern California where all of a sudden they've been silent on all things political, but they decided that this moment they've all become subject matter experts in critical race theory, that they've become subject matter experts around Western civilization, where they start saying heavily charged words, where they really do not, in my personal opinion, understand the depth, the complexity, or the weight to these things. When they start to say, you don't understand, we live in an unjust, unequal, racist society, I'm like, time out, man like if you 're going to start contesting on this terrain i 'm going to have to cross examine you here like that you, you, you are not above that and and i 'm going to do it with love i 'm going to do it with grace and i 'm going do it with truth i 'm going to say if you 're a pastor and you 're going to your congregation and you 're saying that we are a bigoted, awful racist homophobic, terrible country bringing down the almost, in my opinion, the, the the gratitude that we should have to live in this country, I feel a moral obligation to call that out. And especially in the last couple of months, I've seen that. And so I, I understand that we as Christians, we want to be peace-loving. We want to be, um, we, we want to be compassionate. We want to be empathetic. We want to be magnanimous, totally and completely agree with all those things. However, we all know this, that in Christ's enormity of his teaching, he also said, that the word, him, was there to also divide, that he was gonna turn father against son. And sometimes when you say truth, sometimes people are gonna take exception with that. And I think that there has been an overemphasis in certain Christian circles being like, we just have to almost create a kind of harmonious utopia here on earth, and I would love that to happen. At the same time, I'm not going to waver for a second, and I don't think anyone else should, about proclaiming truth, because guess what? There are people right now that were churches that have been non-political, they're still being arrested. Those pastors are still being criminalized. And, and we have to understand that the root of all this, politics is just the reflection of what's really happening. There's a spiritual struggle happening in our country right now. There is. And that, that is the elemental core of the really what's happening, the wrestling in America right now. And um, I, I really believe that the church has an incredible opportunity. And the reason why this church, I'm gonna see, I just believe this church is gonna be so immensely blessed and is gonna continue to grow is because you have an amazing pastor and... Pastors, I should say. And also, because people right now are living in a sea of confusion, especially with political civic matters. and and the church should offer biblical clarity. What does the Bible say about private property? Because it actually says quite a lot that Abraham didn't go to Hebron and say, this is my land because God commands. He purchased it. What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about life? What does the Bible say about all these issues that are pushing us? And so the churches that step up, and there will be a cost. You guys know this. There will be people that try to misrepresent, there'll be people that throw stuff. However, I believe that this next great awakening will be rooted in the Galatians 3 model, which is that the law is a school teacher to Christ. There's 61 million people that are going to cast their ballot for President Trump. Here's a question though. Are every single one of those people going to church every single Sunday? Probably not. So let's tie this all together there's prison ministries, marriage ministries, all these ministries, where's the ministry to say, those 61 million people that say they love America, say they love freedom, say they love freedom, why don't we try to get them to come into the church? Why don't all of a sudden, we have this plane of agreement, like what an unbelievable opportunity for the body to be able to expand.
1: So good, so good, so good. You know, Charlie, as, as I look out, uh, you know, there's the great battle at the moment, I think you were hitting on it there, between preference and truth, preference and truth. And uh, my beautiful bride, uh, maybe a month ago, said, you know, uh, I just feel a tweak in my spirit. There's something broken about the, the narrative of most pastors is, hey, go out and vote your values, Well, there's a difference between my preference and his truth. So there's a book in the Bible called the book of Judges, which when you read it, it's a chaos book because all the way through it, it it is um, peppered with this statement, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. So I'm just living my truth, a.k.a. preference over truth. Jesus is the way, the truth. God is the God of truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So, so what we're seeing right now is that, uh, well, you know, Donald Trump is a racist and the problem with America is capitalism. Capitalism exploits. Capitalism is yeah. evil. Um, we need socialism. Would you maybe dig into, yeah, isn't to. socialism caring for people? Doesn't it, doesn't it bring care?
0: You know, I've never spoken on this topic before, so. Look, socialism is seductive. I'm the first one to say that if I was a socialist, my job would be a lot easier. I could tell people that you're a victim, give them a lot of other people's stuff, you know, blame others for your problems, say you have to take responsibility. It's an easier sell. It's way more seductive. Socialism also violates two out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal. Yeah. Socialism, let's, let's go back to what socialism really is. It's rooted, in, it's rooted in Marxism, which inherently is to believe the struggle of the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. They ha- there are economic fallacies built into socialism. Number one, zero-sum game. Meaning that trade, commerce, inherently means that there's an exploiter and someone who's being exploited. Essentially this idea of the oppressed and the oppressor. We know in the Western world that this is just not true. Now while there are market relationships where there's inequity, while there is regulation that is needed, generally the rule of markets is that when you trade with voluntarism and the price system is allowed to exist, everybody wins in that kind of a transaction. And it takes an entrepreneur to take a risk in the marketplace. It takes somebody wanting to buy that product. And so how, has the mar- how have markets actually done? Let's look at the track record. Well, over the last 200 years, really the entire span of our country is when markets really started to bubble up. In 1776, there were three important pieces of literature written. There was Common Sense by Thomas Paine in February 1776. There was the Declaration of Independence, which is our birth certificate, which could have been our death certificate. It was the most unknown document ever written because they did not know how it was gonna end. They signed it, they said, this could be my hanging, this could be our birth, we don't know, we trust God. Amazing. Also, the inquiry into the wealth of nations which is by Adam Smith. Now, the the actual title of The Wealth of Nations is so important, an inquiry into. Now, when we teach young people, we just call it The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith was going on a discovery mission. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are certain countries being richer than other countries? Like, what's, what's driving this? Like, why are certain civilizations able to care for the sick better, able to care for the poor. And so in that same year of 1776, this enlightenment combustion engine was coming out, and Adam Smith concluded this, that generally people in a market are going to try to create a product worthy of somebody else trying to buy it. And while there are irregularities, while there are bad people, generally the moving trend is better products, lower prices, and more people participating in that market. And he made the argument that if you disenfranchise that, you get rid of the market. Any sort of central authority will never be able to create the beauty what we have here. Here's the greatest example I have of how good we have it here in this country and how we take it for granted. The last seven months, we shut down our country. I am a huge critic of the lockdowns. We can get into that in a a future, uh, you know, in the in the next service. However, the one thing we took for granted is that the grocery stores. We're we're filled, we threw more food away than we consumed during the lockdown. The supply chain's uninterrupted. Most countries had millions of people go into almost borderline starvation and back into poverty. When you have a price system, when you have entrepreneurs, all of us actually were able to breathe a little bit easier because you could still have the seven different types of hot sauce that you want at the local grocery store. (laughs) That you've got the nine different skews of shampoo. What an amazing thing we take for granted, right? In the time of a crisis, you're still able to push three buttons and have a package delivered to your front door. <laughs> uh, what you want it, when you want it. And I, th- we d- I think we need to articulate that in this time of crisis, one of the few reasons we did not totally tear each other apart, one of the few reasons that this was not a depression that we were never able to get out of, is we did have private property rights, entrepreneurs trying to make things better, people taking risks in the marketplace, a price system, and <laughs> what's really incredible is that, I have discovered that socialism is much more about hating the rich than helping the poor. It's much
1: more about... Wow! Much more about hating the rich than helping the poor.
0: And if, if you care about poor people, I care about poor people, I do. We are commanded to care about poor people as Christians. And I just look at the data. I think it was an awesome thing that six million people got off food stamps in the first two years of the Trump presidency into high wage earning jobs. That's a good thing. Off of government assistance, into self-reliant work. Why is it that the poverty on the planet is the lowest level it has ever been in the history of the world? Is it redistribution schemes? Is it central authorities? Is it dictators with good ideas? No, it's this thing that's almost left to the imagination. It's a thing called a market. It's a thing where someone has a good idea, they can trade. And if you think someone's doing it bad, then you can go compete against them. And I'm not, I'm not one to dogmatically defend it. There's irregularities, there's exceptions, there's rules that you need for the road. Totally get all that. However, the dismissal of private property, entrepreneurs, and risk-taking all together and say all of it has all been a mistake all the time is completely rooted, in my personal opinion, in a power grab. That's what it's really all about, is that people say that this system is so decentralized that if I'm able to be in control, I can then possess more power. And so we ask ourselves, what is the correct economic position that we as Christians should believe in? And what's really interesting about a capitalist or free market model is it's completely on you. Is that the idea of liberty and freedom is that it does allow you to go be super rich and super wealthy and be an awful person. It allows you that freedom. However, you can also be an employee or a business owner, give people raises, give generously and charitably. You then have the freedom and the liberty to live out the great commission by Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting point too, which is if you hate poverty, free markets are the greatest poverty elimination machine in the history of the planet. It just is. (laughs) Secondly, secondly with that, I want to be, we look into the scriptures and people misrepresent, I think, Jesus' love and compassion for the poor for somehow supplementing a governmental agenda to take from some people and re- redistribute to others. Never did Jesus Christ ever argue for a redistribution political scheme. It did not happen at all whatsoever. Instead, I can point to scripture to the exact opposite. I, Jesus had a repeating theme had a lot of different themes that he really reinforced, one of which was multiplication, right? Jesus feeding the 5,000, the parable of the talents, right? Jesus called and challenged the body to what you are given, do more with that, multiply it. The parable of the talents is one of the most harshest teachings that we have of Jesus Christ, with just such incredible condemnation and if you don't know the parable of the talents, i just quickly recap it. Uh, Jesus talks about three individuals that have a master. The master gives all of them a talent. Now, the talent was a form of currency back then, but it actually can actually have the same sort of application to what we consider to be a talent. It's a gift, right? The first person does nothing with what they were given. They hide it under a rock. The second person multiplies it a, a little bit. The third person multiplies it significantly. Jesus then says the master says to the person that hides it under the rock, shame on you, such a harsh teaching, I'm paraphrasing, but basically almost condemns them to eternal suffering. The second person says, you did fine. The person who multiplied it greatly, incredible amount of reward, incredible amount of praise. Now, ask yourself the question, what governmental system, what economic system, what structure allows you to multiply what God has given you to the highest possible level for his kingdom? Now. Let's just talk in real terms. Where your father grew up in East Germany, were you able to multiply for the kingdom of God? In Venezuela, when you're worrying about your next meal, are you able to multiply for the kingdom of God? Is there a lot of multiplication for Christ happening in Cuba and North Korea? Of course not, because when you remove liberty, which is God's idea, not man's idea, that (laughs) idea of multiplication gets completely and totally obliterated and removed. And so I really believe that we as Christians are called challenge to do more to to and by the way just very simple paul said it and it says it in proverbs differently but in, in a similar fashion which is a man does not work a man does not eat but the deeper the deeper truth to that is that you got to bring something to the table everybody like you can't just be a taker you got to wake up you got to do something you got to
1: contribute you got to lean in so good so good so good <clears throat> You know, I mean, there's a even deeper than that. the the basic premise, the basic psychology. And Leanne and I, we, you know, we've got four kids. Is we discovered that whatever behaviour we punished, we got less of. Whatever behaviour we rewarded, we got more of. Now, the checkout grocery lines are notorious for putting candy at the checkout, and all of our kids. On the checkout, when they saw the candy, I want candy, they immediately, and they would throw a tantrum, and it was so embarrassing as they're screaming, I want candy, I want candy, (laughs) to just give in and give them candy. However, it wasn't just giving them candy to uh, quieten them, it was actually rewarding a transaction (laughs) that we were reinforcing that if you scream and complain, loud enough long enough you will get your way the problem with socialism is that it punishes the producer it the, we all heard the rich need to pay their fair share you know it's like they're already paying their fair share if you punish the entrepreneurs if you punish the wealthy and then reward the indolent the lazy you 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 are messing with it the rich, if whatever you punish, you get less of. If we punish entrepreneurialism, if we punish those who are going out, taking risks, being entrepreneurs, if we, we're gonna get less of those, and if you reward, whatever you reward, you get more of. So so let me just now switch gears in, in that because uh, this can be seen. Well, you know what, you got a, you know a white pastor in this church and right now with critical race theory and white privilege and, and, you know, what's wrong with black? Do you, does, does Charlie Kirk, does the conservative movement not actually believe that black lives matter? Why wouldn't you support black lives mattering?
0: Well, first of all, of course, I absolutely do black lives matter. All lives matter. We're all made in the image of God and every single life matters on this planet. Every single matter. And I'm unafraid to say so. Secondly, I've been told that I'm not allowed to comment on this because I'm a white person, which is exactly why I lean in on it and I comment on it more than anything else.
1: It doesn't get more racist than that.
0: Now, but just let me be very clear that truth transcends skin color. So let's just look at the three laws of physics, right? An object at rest will stay at rest. Um, Force equals mass times acceleration and we go to the second law of thermodynamics, the inevitable law of decay. You know, you look at all the different laws that we know, the law of gravity, all these sorts of things, it, it completely irrelevant of who says it or what, whether or not you're black or white or Hispanic, they're equally transferable. It's not your truth. These are the laws of nature. And so when I comment on these issues, people say, well, you do not know that specific struggle. And while I, I do recognize that there are certain narratives out there that are very compelling and they deserve compassion, I also understand that there's macro data and there's empirical evidence that any single person should be able to talk about. And so let me just be very clear that this is the greatest country to be a black person on the planet, by far. It's not even close. If you just take black America, they're the 18th wealthiest country in the world. Just black America, 18th wealthiest country in the world. So they say we're systemically racist right they say that the structure of our system does not allow black people to succeed why is it that the average nigerian immigrant does better than the average white person in this country nigerian immigrants are black and nigerian immigrants they value family education and they value entrepreneurship hard work hard work and over one or two generations they succeed incredibly if we were so systemically racist and the laws only worked for certain people of certain skin color, why is it that they were able to do so well? Do you know that a white person born to a single mother, and single mothers are heroes out there, by the way, this is not against single mothers, it's not, but it's just, just true. A white person born to a single mother is less likely to succeed than a black individual, black baby born to a stable mother and father. The true privilege in this country is two-parent privilege. It's not a skin color privilege. And so. And to even build, out, you know, build it further, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans earn per capita income 30% more than the average white person in this country. The Constitution was not written in Korean, and the Constitution was not written for any sort of racial group. It wasn't. In fact, we're the longest-lasting state. We're the longest-lasting country with the same charter documents in the history of the planet. And that's because the Constitution was not written for the times. It was written to stand the test of time. And the United States Constitution. And and I I take great exception at this entire thing around critical race theory and all this because I grew up in America not too long ago in high school where I went to a high school that was 53% Hispanic where we had 110 different cultures and nationalities represented, over 15 different languages spoken, very diverse high school. My best friends were black and Mexican and Nicaraguan and Guatemalan. And I say this with no reservations, we really got along. And I grew up in a post-racial chapter of America where there was this window where I was told that skin color does not matter. Where I grew up by people telling me that character mattered far more than skin color ever would. And now I am watching eight years later the very same people that were in power, that, like the different people that are in power now in the same positions, I should say, all of a sudden say, no, no, skin color actually really does matter. And th- that, that is a horrifically immoral, yeah. evil, and dangerous thing to believe. And I, I just say it so bluntly, your skin color doesn't mean anything to me. Like, it doesn't. It's completely irrelevant. I care about your character. I care about your values. I care about your worldview. I don't <laughs> care about your skin color. And so, and the final thing I'll say is this, is that, some people, you know, and, I, and I think they've really gotten attention to some of these people, they say, well, look at the discrepancies of data. Look at how certain communities of black individuals are doing worse than white people. I say, do not immediately ascribe racism to what could be described with other things. For example, fatherlessness. Other, uh, or there are so many other reasons why that data might exist other than the color of the skin or, and so this is what it's called, multi-dimensional thinking. And Thomas Sowell did this so well in discrimination and disparities. And I encourage all of you guys to just read. Thomas Sowell being a black economist, where he said that it will be the death of America if we blame racism on what could be blamed on human agency, human action, nuclear family, and education. Because then what ends up happening is that when you have very real things that could be fixed, you just say, no, it is this, undeclared, non-specific, incredibly emotionally charged statement of racism. And what it actually does in my personal opinion is that for the black community out there, I actually think, and I've seen this happen and, I've, and we've done a lot of work in the black community with Candace Owens and Brandon Tatum and David Harris Jr., incredible amount of work, is that I actually think it lowers the bar of expectations in the black community in this country is that instead of of challenging communities to say maybe the 77% of black children that are born without a father in this home, maybe let's try to get it down to 40%. Instead, it allows this unspecific term of saying it's systemically racist as the reason why these communities are not doing as well as they should be. And so I feel personally called to contribute to this conversation, especially because they're trying to silence anyone that is not of a certain skin color to be able to talk about this. And I think that anyone should be able to speak on any topic at any
1: time, regardless of skin color or nationality. Yes, well, I mean, Charlie, look, it's, it's, it's a fact. The mainstream media, it is a fact that Donald Trump is a racist, he's building walls, he's putting kids in cages. Why would we vote for a known racist?
0: Well, look, I I said this in the previous service, and I think it's, it's worth repeating, which is that we have a supply and demand problem with racism in our country. Like, there's an insatiable demand for racists, meaning, like, they think they're everywhere, yet there's an incredible low amount of supply. Like, and so... So Jesse
1: Smollett had to hire yeah, two I mean, black to guys to pretend they were white guys.
0: Well, yeah, when you f- have to fake hate crimes, you probably didn't have to do that in the antebellum South, right? Like, you just it was pretty well known that they existed. And so, but also, anyone that pops their head out as, like, a declared racist, they become really popular really quickly because there's so few of them because there's such a demand. So it's like, I told you. Okay, there's, like, six of them, okay? And, and I... I I, I push back even further than this, outside of the Donald Trump argument, which again, people do not magically become racist just because they run for president. He was 127 rap songs, Jay-Z, every single spe- rapper you could possibly imagine loved him, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, he owned a sports team, Herschel Walker loved him, he was beloved by the black community until he came down the escalator and he started the run against a political party that all of a sudden they said, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. And, and I, I find such, a, I said this in the earlier service, and I'll repeat this, is that it really is disappointing, because here's what it also does, is there are real racists in this country, there's not a lot of them, but the more you use that term, it cheapens real racism is what it does, (laughs) is that all of a sudden it dilutes the evil, because then all of a sudden you call me this thing, and you loop me in with the same bucket as David Duke, all of a sudden there is, when you start to make those comparisons, you know who gets really happy? The racists get happy, because then all of a sudden there's an immediate dismissal of everyone that gets called that, and that's not a good thing. So those terms are real, and they should be reserved for actual people that harbor that sin and that prejudice. But when you loop it all together, you dilute it, and it has no meaning then.
1: Would you you talk a little bit, you know, Jesus Jesus taught, you shall know them by their fruit. No, not by what they say or not by what others say, but by their fruit. What, What, what is Donald Trump's fruit? I mean, isn't the yeah, kids in cages, isn't that his fruit?
0: Oh, jeez, <laughs> It's just, I get this all the time. I mean, look, again, the kids in cages thing was done under the Obama administration. It's been ended. There, all the photographs were used, all the videos that were used. And so it's just, it's incredibly misleading to just engage in that. And it's just been debunked and deproven on every single turn, unproven. But let's just talk about Donald Trump from a biblical worldview, right? So... People's Christians say, I can't vote for Trump. He's such a bad person. I say, then you got to go buy a pair of scissors and you got to go take out Hebrews from your Bible because in the hall of faith, Samson is in the hall of faith. Let's talk about Samson. Let's talk about Samson. I cannot do a sermon on Samson to any audience under the age of 16, maybe 18. God came to Samson while he was in the bed with a prostitute twice Samson was not exactly living, let's say, according to the law of the prophets. Let's put it that way, okay? Yet God used Samson because God's chosen people were unwilling to contest and fight. Samson took a jaw of a donkey and killed a thousand Philistines and died a sacrificial death for what was good and what was pure and what was true. And so Samson has, was known for his hair, Donald Trump known for his hair, so there's kind of a comparison there. But, um, <laughs> However, all throughout the Bible, there are people that sinned mightily and greatly in defiance to God, yet God used them. David being another popular example. But then you know them by their fruit. Okay, how about moving the embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing the Golan Heights? How about canceling the Iran deal? How about being the most pro-life president in American history? How about Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, and 200 Durkitt Court judges? How about fighting to end child sex trafficking in our country? And the the list—I could go one by one by one, and this man— in a very special, and I really believe God is working in his heart in a very special way. He has a, he has a love for pastors and for Christians, unlike any other political leader I've ever seen, even political leaders, by the way, that are Christians. He, he welcomes them into the Oval Office. He asks to be prayed over. He takes the calls from pastors across the country. He signs executive orders on religious liberty. He's put judges that believe that church is essential. And remember, For those of you that really still say, I just can't do it, the tweets, this, that, all this, three times married, twice divorced, okay, you're better, like, you're such a good person, and I'm not, and I get it, okay, so terrific. However, then fine. Remember, you're voting for two people. Mike Pence has been loyally married to the same person for a couple decades. Mike Pence is a Bible believing Christian, Mike Pence prays over the president every single morning. The gospel has been introduced back into the White House, Is being proclaimed in more ways than one. And. And I tell you this, time, but, okay. which is we as Christians are called the proclaim truth. And also we should defend the people that allow us to proclaim the truth and also fight for what is good in the world. And it's very interesting, the, some of the moral pietism that has spread throughout the Christian community. And I think, I think it's a misunderstanding of roles. And so, for example, you know, we hire a good amount of people at Turning Point. You guys hire a good amount of people at Awaken. And you guys have job postings. And so we have a job posting for president right now. And I think that is somewhat true. But it's like, what do you want in a president, right? What are the times that we are in? Are we in battling times? Are we in a struggle? Are we in times where we just kind of want to live it high, the high life, everything's great, we just kinda wanna have coasting times, are all elections made equal? The answer is of course not. Yeah. And so I think the job posting that we have is exactly what I said in the RNC speech, which is that the West, which the Bible created Western civilization, is under attack from within, externally, like you wouldn't believe. Decent society, free speech, family creation, the church, all that's under attack. And I think the job posting that we have, at, have opened two weeks from now is that we gotta hire a bodyguard for Western oh. civilization. <laughs> And when you hire a bodyguard, I want a bodyguard that will protect what you care about, right? Protect your family, protect the Constitutional Republic. You want a bodyguard that will stand in that door and be able to, first and foremost, be unafraid to fight. Not run away from a fight and know how to win. And look, President Trump, he sends tweets that might make you wince. You do all these sorts of things, and I'll tell you this. I love them. (laughs) If there was, there's a job, if if we had a job posting for someone that would want to babysit your grandkids, maybe that would be George W. Bush. George W. Bush is a nice guy. He's a really good Christian. But even George W. Bush didn't move the embassy to Jerusalem. Even George W. Bush didn't speak of the March for Life. Even George W. Bush got us John Roberts, who said church was not essential. So maybe God is working in this guy that is three times married, twice divorced, came down the escalator to go contest and fight for what is good in the world so that we can keep on doing what we're doing. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to
1: awakenedchurch.com.